This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. America, the Great Depression. Things aren't looking so good for the American economy, and all but one of your competitors has fallen victim to the brink as people cut back on recreational spending. But here you are, Holly Davidson, sitting on the edge of economic decline. It'll take some ingenuity for you to make yourself a necessity in a country pinching its last penny. So rev your engines, don your leather coats, and make sure to wear your helmets. Because this is Harley Davidson on the brink. everyone. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And today we're going to talk about a company that has a good long history. Harley Davidson. Been around been around for, for a week or two. Yeah, for 115 years, more like it. Yeah. And, uh, and just interest to full disclosure, uh, I do not, nor have I ever owned a motorcycle. I do not, nor have never owned a motorcycle either. Uh, but my family, they're all motorcyclists. My father uh, has a Goldwing, mm-hmm. and my aunt has been a part of, like, friendly motorcycle gangs and has taught motorcycle safety classes and has owned many motorcycles. Yeah, whereas my parents are teachers and would probably scold me if I were to ever even look <laughs> at a motorcycle for too long. But we want to talk a little bit about where the company Harley-Davidson came from, and then out of all the companies that started before the Great Depression, all the motorcycle companies, how is it that Harley-Davidson and the Indian Motorcycle Company, are the only two that that were able to get through it. So how did (laughs) Harley-Davidson get started? Well, Harley-Davidson got started in 1901 when William S. Harley, who was only 21 at time, designed a blueprint for an engine on a bicycle. Yes, he was from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the home of Harley-Davidson. Yes. And uh, at this point, when he 
patents this, motorcycles were already a thing. They yes. existed. It's yes. not like Harley Davidson invented the motorcycle. Uh, they were pretty popular in Europe, but they were still kind of an oddity in the United States at this point. Uh, the first motorcycle made in the U.S. was from a company called the California Motor Company. That one produced a motorcycle called the Marks Motorcycle back in 1896. Wow. So, yeah, it's the, – the vehicle has been around for a while, but obviously they did not – you know, make a stamp to the point where they became synonymous with motorcycles. Uh, 1901, by the way, is the same year that the Indian Motorcycle Company was formed. And that would remain the arch nemesis to Harley Davidson for uh, the duration. uh, Up to now. (laughs) Yes. So in 1903, just two years after this engine was designed, William Harley and Arthur Davidson, who were actually childhood friends, made the first Harley Davidson motorcycle public. And they built it out of this little 10 by 15 wooden shed with their name written on the front of it. Yes. They didn't even spring for a sign. At least it didn't say no girls allowed. It wasn't like it was. Uh, I mean, you don't know that. I'm guessing. So the that first vehicle was essentially a motorized bicycle. So with like a like a gasoline-powered engine. The bike still had pedals. It still had a chain drive. And the rider was meant to ride the bike, get it up to speed before engaging the engine. And in fact, you were supposed to even pedal a bit if you ever hit a steep incline. It couldn't go super fast. The prototype version, before they started making the production model, went about the speed of a brisk walk. I mean, the thing is, you're saving some energy which you're going to need if you've got to pedal up a steep hill. To me, that's the part I want it taken so off of me you for. You think of it as a pedal-assist bicycle. Yes. Well, they made three whole motorcycles that Whoa. first year. Whoa, slow down. I know, right? So it's a very small number, but they were also building those motors by hand. Yeah. Like th- th- this wasn't like they had some manufacturing facility. They were handcrafting these motorcycles, including the motors themselves. Well, despite that, they opened their first dealership just a year later in Chicago. Yep. And uh, then they would find by 1906 they had the capital to actually invest in better manufacturing facilities, right? Mm-hmm. They ended up getting a, a factory, an actual factory, not a shed. I mean, it was still kind of small. Yeah, it was pretty small. You have here, it was 28 by 80 feet. Yes. Tiny. And uh, they ended up tripling their workforce because it went from two people to six. And they more than tripled how many bikes they were making because uh, now they're up to making 50 bikes. Yep, 50 bikes a year at, uh, by 1906. And in 1907, they would incorporate and the company would end up doubling in size, both by the number of dealerships. They ended up opening up more of those and also by the number of employees. And they also brought on another partner to the company. So it wasn't just... Harley and Davidson. It was also... Davidson. Yeah, it was Harley, Davidson, and Davidson. Because it was Arthur Davidson's brother, William Davidson, who joined. So then you have two Davidsons and a Harley. Yes. I'm glad they did not change her name to Davidson, Harley, Davidson. Yeah, that would have been odd. And one of the things that the company became known for, it became one of their really go-to strategies, was their participation, their involvement in racing. And they were really good at it, too. So they won a lot of categories in racing and a lot of categories in uh, endurance and reliability contests. Um, And this was to kind of spread the word. Yeah, it was Uh, like a marketing scheme. Yeah, because, I mean, people needed 
reliable transportation. They needed transportation they could keep at home and take from home. And especially if they didn't live in a big city, trains and streetcars weren't as much of an option. And roads were not in great shape no, either. No, no. And horses required, you know, feeding and a lot of upkeep. So they're trying to turn this motorized bicycle from kind of a novelty to something that every home needs. And at this stage, remember, we don't really have cars, right? There there's some electric cars that had been made and there mm-hmm. were some there were some internal combustion engine cars that were being made, but they were oddities even more so than motorcycles. They were really expensive. Yeah. And they had very limited range, especially the electric ones. Electric cars predate internal combustion engine cars. Yeah, but people didn't want to use electric cars because they thought they'd be too quiet and dangerous. <laughs> I mean, mostly come they, on. Mostly they thought I can get up the street, but then I can't get back. (laughs) That too. So this was one of those uh, moments where there was not really, there weren't really other options for a lot Mm -hmm. of people who needed to be able to get from place to place. So the motorcycle was actually looked at as a potential practical vehicle for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, And along the racing in 1913, Harley-Davidson actually started their own racing department. Mm -hmm. So Harley-Davidson owners and Harleys are kind of called hogs. I've always heard them called hogs, Mm -hmm. and I did not know why. And I love that there's a real reason, and then there's the retrofitted reason, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, they say that hog stands for Harley Owners Group. Uh Uh-huh. But... The reason that I read is because there were a couple of racing guys who, when they won a race, would take the little mascot of like a hog around and take laps with a little pig. So so there was a literal hog <laughs> involved. I like that description better. And then later on we said, how will we call say that hog stands for Harley Owners Group? Kind of like uh, how Mickey Mouse got his name. There's, yeah. some, there's some different possible theories here. Uh, Milwaukee was starting to get receive a lot of benefit from the fact that Harley-Davidson was a growing industry out of their city. They were the top consumer for gas and electric out of that city. Now, by 1917, we start to see one of the most important customers that Harley-Davidson would ever have. In fact, there are two big, big reasons why Harley-Davidson was able to make it out of the Uh, era of the Great Depression. And one of the two is that the U.S. military became a really big customer Mm -hmm. for Harley-Davidson. And by 1917, we're talking about World War I and the United States getting involved. And so the U.S. signed a contract with Harley-Davidson and a third of all the vehicles that Harley-Davidson was producing were being sold to the U.S. military. Yeah, well, a year later, half of all of their motorcycles were being sold to the military for World War One. That's like 20,000 motorcycles. That's incredible. Yeah. So we also got a point where the company formed a an actual quartermaster's school, a, a way of training military on how to work on Harley-Davidson so that mm-hmm. they could remain in good service even overseas. Yeah, and they kept this school even after the war, and they— They molded it to fit their needs at whatever time they were using it for service, for sales, for management. Um, This school lasted until 1990, uh, and it's still kind of around, but now it's called Harley-Davidson University. Mm. And it's funny. I like the little note you have here. The war comes to a conclusion, and the first American to enter Germany post-war rode upon a Harley-Davidson. Yes. Also at this point in 1917, in order to diversify— sold more than just motorcycles. They also sold... Bicycles. 
Yep, that's not bad. No, no, it's not. So the next thing I personally laughed at was that in 1919, they released a sports model, which actually got a lot of popularity overseas um, internationally. Uh, And its cylinder setup made it pretty quiet, which Harleys apparently were known for being quiet. They actually had the nickname Silent Gray Fellows, gray for the paint color they had when they were first being made. And it's just funny to me because now Harleys are like the loud motorcycle. Right. That's the stereotype, revving up the engine and and creating this incredibly loud racket. Uh, But yeah, the early Harleys were known for being very quiet. By 1920, Harley-Davidson had climbed the top of the heap. There, There were other motorcycle companies that were around at the same time as Harley-Davidson and Indian. But by 1920, they they were first place. They were the largest in the world. And not only did they have dealerships in the United States, they had dealerships in lots of countries, 67 countries. Yes. In fact, international sales would become incredibly important. Yeah, and even nowadays, they still have a lot of international sales. Yes. Now that we've set the, the foundation for Harley-Davidson. Let's shake things up, Ooh. right? So we have a company. It's It's gone to the top of its industry. It's doing really well overseas. It had this incredible uh, uh, sale to the United States military during World War I. The problem starts in the 1920s. So it's not yet the Great Depression. That starts in 1929. But in the 1920s, something else, a, a pair of something else has happened. First, there was a bit of a recession, but not the Depression yet. Mm -hmm. That ended up curtailing a lot of consumer spending. Yes. People stopped spending as much money on stuff. But the other thing was a guy, a little guy named Henry Ford comes out with a brand new product, the Model T. Yeah. So now cars are a competitor. It was cheaper and more practical the motorcycles. Yes. Like I said, the electric car had not made a whole lot of headway. It did precede these internal combustion engine cars. The Model T was able to succeed where other cars had failed, largely because Ford was creating this assembly line approach that really brought down the costs of manufacturing Mm -hmm. so he could sell the cars at much cheaper and still make a profit. So Ford was a genius, a true genius from both an engineering and a business perspective in that he was able to bring costs down to make a car affordable to more Americans. Yeah. And as a result, they saw, hey, there's this other vehicle and I can put stuff in it. I can put somebody else in it too. This was something that the average person could actually go out and buy. And so, yeah, Yeah. the Model T ended up taking a big chunk out of Harley-Davidson's domestic sales in the United States. Yeah, I actually got to see a Model T once uh, at an antique car show up in North Georgia. Yeah, every now and then on the streets you might see one go by. Someone has so restored cool. them. They are pretty cool. I'm, I'm not a gearhead, but I'm a wannabe gearhead. So. <laughs> so here we have this new form of transportation, and it's threatening the very business model of Harley-Davidson. And that's that's the big one punch. Mm-hmm. The big two punch is just about to hit. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. 
The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. All right, we got the Model T. Harley Davidson's been knocked by that. Mm -hmm. What is their response? What do they look for? Well, one of the big things that they did is they started uh, convincing police departments to use their motorcycles as like a quick, compact way to enforce law. Um, And this actually was really, really good for Harley Davidson because uh, cops, you know, they put on their motorcycle boots and their little saddlebags and the general public thought they looked like cowboys and they thought that was pretty cool and everybody wanted to be this like quote-unquote modern cowboy. I think that really helped shape the look that we see around motorcycle culture too. Yeah, it's it's um, how they kind of modeled their whole accessory and clothing department to sell to the public. So this, this floats them over the slump that they hit with the Ford. Mm-hmm. But then uh, they also started to depend very heavily upon those overseas markets. So in the mid-1920s, more than 55% of their sales were to foreign markets. So it's an American company, but they're getting more than half of their revenue from overseas sales, mostly in uh, Australia and New Zealand. You're brave to try that accent. I would not be able to do it. I have to get up for work in the morning. <laughs> uh, so one way the company was able to boost sales domestically was, again, through those community events, like the racing events and motorcycle clubs as well. Harley-Davidson was very much encouraging motorcycle clubs because it was a way to kind of 
uh, have a grassroots marketing campaign, mm-hmm. but they also they depended heavily on their on their dealerships. Yes, there was a dealer guy named Bill Nuth or Bill Nuth is K N U T H. <laughs> he was in Milwaukee, and he created something that, as I was looking into it, was repeatedly. Described as something like a circus sideshow <laughs> and motorcycle festival all combined called Newth's College. College spelled with a K. I mean, that's a college I'd like to go to. Yeah. Just saying. Apparently there was a lot of good food and a lot of trick riding and then motorcycle riding tips and things like that. So it was educational and it was also entertaining and it was a community event. So again, it was all about let's show people how cool motorcycles are and we can help increase sales that way. Yeah. And in 1928, sales were increasing and more than 22,000 motorcycles were being produced a year, which is not a huge jump from previous years if you look at today's production limits, but it's still something worth remarking on. Yes. And then the big number two punch hits. Yes. This is the Great Depression. So on October 29th, 1929, what we also call it Black Tuesday, That's when the stock market collapsed in the United States. Investors offloaded a collective 16 million shares across all companies. And this was the first real big major event of what we call the Great Depression. But it wasn't until 1939 that historians would say the United States truly recovered from the Great Depression. Well, it's, you know, it's easy to fall. It's a lot harder to climb back up. This is true. And to make things worse— This depression was way more than just a problem for the United States. It was a worldwide problem. The U.S. experienced it early, but other nations followed suit. Mm -hmm. And a lot of foreign countries were starting to create very high import taxes as a way to generate money for the governments, but in another way to help kind of – slow down imports and rely more on internal uh, Mm -hmm. resources, right? So seeing import taxes go as high as sometimes 50% hurt companies like Harley-Davidson that were really dependent on those overseas markets. Yeah, and when Jonathan says hurt, he means really hurt because their sales dropped to less than one-fifth of what they had been prior to the Great Depression. Yeah, this is a point where the company really was on the verge of bankruptcy. Yes. And so what do you do? When your company is in these dire straits, well, one thing you do is you tighten the belt. Yeah, you you lay people off. Yeah. So a lot of people lost jobs. People who kept their jobs, some of them saw their wages getting cut, their Mm -hmm. hours getting cut. Their work getting cut because companies slowed production. Yeah, there was a, a an account I read by a guy named Joseph Borgen who was a – he worked in the riveting department of Harley-Davidson during this time. And he said that – there was one two-week period where his take-home pay was 92 cents Ish. for two weeks' work. I mean, in the 20s and 30s, that's a little more than it is now, but still not nearly enough. Not, yeah, not, not enough for it to be like two weeks' worth of wages. No. Uh, and their production fell 81% from 1929 to 1933, that period of the most severe downturn in the Great Depression. Uh, Industrial production in the United States in general across all industries fell by 47%. So this was not something unique to Harley-Davidson. It was affecting lots of companies. Some were able to manage a little better than others because they were making necessities that people absolutely required. Yeah. But no one was doing great. 
The gross domestic product for the entire country fell 30%. Unemployment was hitting rates of up to 20%. It was not good. No, it was not good. So Harley-Davidson did a few things to get through this. Uh, they started selling their blueprints and their tools and their machinery to Japan so that Japan could create its own motorcycles. Yes, they were uh, marketed under the Rikuo uh, yes. Line, R-I-K-U-O. Yes. And and the other thing Harley-Davidson did is because they had built up this good reputation with the military and the police departments is they still maintain those relationships and maintain sales to those particular areas. Yes. And that helped a little bit. Now, the, the common consumer might not be able to buy a motorcycle, but the government still was. And they were still doing this work with Japan as far into it as the, the mid to late 30s, although as – uh, tensions were building leading up to World War II, that that relationship would break down. Uh, the military designs were different, obviously, from the consumer ones. It turns out that if you are designing a vehicle for the military, it has to be a little more heavy duty than your average yes. consumer vehicle. Yes. Well, e- even though in, in World War One motorcycles were kind of designed for combat and in World War II they were designed for like courier services, you still need something that's reliable. Mm-hmm. And by 1931 – Pretty much every single U.S. motorcycle company that was not Indian or Harley-Davidson ceases to exist. The Great Depression was a large part of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was also the issue of which motorcycles were seen as being the best performers, right? Yeah. Because all those races were – Frequently being won by people who are either on an Indian, Indian motorcycle or a Harley-Davidson yeah. motorcycle. Now, Harley did sweep a lot of races. I'm just going to reiterate that. <laughs> yeah, although part of that might be because Harley-Davidson also had a reputation for browbeating motorcycle uh organizations, Mm -hmm. racing organizations, to tweak the rules in such a way that it favored Harley-Davidson motorcycles over other, ahem, Indian motorcycles. Tricky. Yeah. Uh, So some of the practices in order to stay afloat, now granted, you know, desperate times, but still kind of shady. (laughs) Uh, So they, they continued to encourage bike clubs to promote motorcycles and try and boost sales. And they pressured the American Motorcycle Association to tweak those rules I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's interesting. I read one report that said, in hindsight, the Great Depression forced Harley-Davidson to reevaluate how it would market motorcycles to uh, the American market. Because this this sequence, the Great Depression and World War II, meant that a lot of their overseas markets were cut off from them. Yes. And so they they realized that we can't as a company really survive if that is how we turn our focus because when things go south, our our revenue source is completely gone. We need to look how how can we market more to Americans as well. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot of those companies – that would have otherwise stuck around got scared off by the Great Depression. Some of them were worried that the downturn was going to last eight, ten years, uh, whereas the downturn lasted four years, and then the Great Depression itself lasted a full decade because the recovery period was so long. But some people were thinking things were just going to keep getting bad. They were not going to get better. And so you had a lot of business owners saying, all right, we're just going to bail now. We're we're getting out of the the industry, and we're going to focus on doing something else that is – uh, got a better chance of success. Yeah, yeah, but Harley didn't. Um, in 1932, they created a three-wheel servicar, car, which unlike their previous three-wheel vehicles, um, wasn't meant to carry large amounts of 
product, basically. Yeah, it wasn't a delivery service vehicle. No, no, it was like a tricycle. It was like a police tricycle. Yeah. Um, but it was really popular with the police. In fact, they used them until 1970s. Yep. I, I love the note here about the reverse controls. Why Why did these vehicles have reverse controls? Um, so that meter maids could drive the car and mark cars for ticketing at the same time. Yeah, making a little chalk mark on the wheel so that you can test it when you come back and see if the car's been moved or not. Yeah. Yeah, fun times. I mean, pretty ingenious. Yeah. <laughs> now, 1933, the last year of the downturn, Remember, just a few years earlier, they had produced 22,000 bikes. Mm -hmm. In 1933, it was a very different story. Yeah, they only produced 4,000 bikes. But they did start producing more interesting bikes. Uh, they started adding an eagle image to their gas tank and made their lettering just a little bit fancier and started uh, selling their bikes in a variety of colors. Yep. And uh, they they had done some custom jobs before, but now they were starting to look at that more seriously. Uh, and they were also still doing well on the race circuit at that time, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and they also came out with a popular bike in 1936, the EL, which was nicknamed the Knucklehead because it had these two little valves with these little caps on it that looked like a little knuckle, mm -hmm. little knuckles. Um, and it was twice as powerful, and it had an all-new suspension and tank and frame, and people really liked this model. Uh, it, was, it was a very popular model for a while, and it bumped their production back up to 10,000 bikes a year. Still less than half of where they had been, but they were starting to recover a little bit. Yes. And also as, a, as sort of a, a side effect of the Great Depression, uh, you started seeing things like the gas prices were dropping, uh, and so it made motorcycling a little less of a, a luxury mm -hmm. because you didn't have to, you know, the, the gas prices weren't exorbitant. So that helped a little bit. Yeah. So if you could afford a motorcycle and you're unemployed because of the Great Depression because everybody's laying people off and you've got all this time to spend, well, now you can afford gas at least. <laughs> now, the real thing that helped Harley-Davidson turn everything around had nothing to do with all of those marketing campaigns, really. It had to do with with world politics, yes. something that Harley-Davidson had not played into at all. And it would turn out to be what really saved the company. And we'll tell you all about that in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights. Speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. All right, so the big event that really helps Harley-Davidson come back from the brink 
you know, it was on this sort of shaky recovery ground. But the big thing that helped them was actually World War II. Yeah, uh, during during World War II, they shipped o- almost ninety thousand military motorcycles overseas called WLAs. Yeah, uh, the WLA, also known as the Liberator. Uh, this is my favorite Harley Davidson design by far. It was if I were to own a Harley Davidson, I would want either a WLA or a replica of a WLA. I mean, it is you know, and a lot of people after the war. Have had the same opinion as you. You know, they were they were tough. They were sturdy. They have a little bit of a retro feel now, and they're still pretty swank. So yeah. I I don't blame you at I, all. I, I even like the olive drab version of like I, you don't even need to paint it up for me. <laughs> so they ended up actually winning awards for the design of their motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They were very dependable and they were very useful for the military, and they're. Pretty boss. They are pretty boss. They had some cool things that were specific for military use, like heavy-duty racks, secondary blackout lighting, and fork-mounted machine gun scabbards. Would you want one with no, all I, that? No, I don't need all. I don't. I don't need the scabbards. Okay, but yeah, they they pretty much catered only to the military mm-hmm. by 1942. Yeah, so much so that each civilian dealer just got one new bike that year in 1942, and. People had to start recycling their pistons to get replacement Mm. parts. And like I said, World War II is the real reason that Indian and Harley-Davidson were able to survive past the Great Depression when so many of their contemporaries could not do that, when so many other companies folded. A few companies tried to make a go of it after the Great Depression downturn. Like they, they actually started a motorcycle company in between the Great Depression and World War II. But... Indian and Harley-Davidson were the ones that landed those military contracts, yes. right? So you get to World War II, and then the United States starts to ration various types of resources because they needed them for the war effort. Mm-hmm. And that meant that if you were a company and you were in manufacturing, you had to hope you could maybe transition to manufacturing stuff for the military because chances are you were not going to get the raw materials you needed to make the stuff for – regular civilians. Yeah, and the military already had their peeps. Yep, so Indian Harley-Davidson land those contracts. These other companies had not landed the contracts. They could not get access to the raw materials. And so a lot of them ended up going out of business because they literally couldn't get the stuff to build anymore. This is also around the same time that the Japanese company, the, the Senkyo Corporation, which was parent company to the Rikyu uh, motorcycle company, mm-hmm. cut ties with Harley-Davidson because obviously the Japanese government and the United States government were at odds yes. at this point. Yes, but at least they had gotten Harley-Davidson through the Depression. Yes. Another thing that bolstered Harley-Davidson after war is that when soldier, when the soldiers were done with the war, mm-hmm. they came back to the States and— they were really fond of these motorcycles they were riding on, and they wanted to be able to still ride on these motorcycles, so they all bought their own. Yeah, although, of course, the motorcycles for civilian use were very different from the ones that were yes. made for the military. So we saw the rise of a couple of different types of culture mm-hmm. in the motorcycle world that really came to, to fruition in the post-World War II era. One of those was the whole uh, bobbers and choppers. So bobbers and choppers are altered motorcycles. You take a factory motorcycle. You take a motorcycle right off the factory line. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about a bobber, 
You're talking about someone who is removing pretty much anything that's not necessary to make the motorcycle go. Yes. And it strips it down to essentially the types of motorcycles that the soldiers were using during World War II. So you're removing things like side view mirrors mm-hmm. and windscreens and front brakes <laughs> and stuff that a lot of us would consider to be pretty important components to your average yeah, motorcycle. Yeah, And, you know, it was really popular to mod these bikes for racing. Yes. But also it kind of brought to rise the outlaw motorcycle culture. Yes. Uh, because soldiers oftentimes have trouble reacclimating to civilian life. And so they'd get on their motorcycles and they'd— Go out and carouse. They'd be a little rowdy. They'd be a little rowdy. And Sometimes more than a little rowdy. Yeah, they do. They do some some things they weren't supposed to, and this actually made Harley's reputation kind of go down. They suffered yeah. a little bit from this. This is also where we started to see like not just motorcycle clubs, but but actual biker gangs. Gangs, yeah. So you see the rise of various gangs that would become things like the Hell's Angels, and you would get this outlaw biker culture that associated motorcycles with. Illegal activities. Yes. Uh, everything everything from uh, violent crime to uh, to drug distribution, that kind of stuff. It was a real PR problem. Yes, yes. So much so that Harley had to start subcontracting work for GM to make up for that hit in their revenue. But the company today is still churning out motorcycles. It's interesting because, you know, I talked about earlier how more than 50% of their sales were in international markets. Mm -hmm. And by 2017, they had almost gotten back to that same space. Yeah, 40% of their sales were overseas last year. Yeah, and uh, there are more than 1,000 Harley clubs around the world. Yeah, and they do a lot of charity work, which is kind of cool. Yep. Uh, the average buyer age, I love this, The from a 2013 article, the average buyer age of a Harley Davidson is 47. So I still got a few years, Ariel, before I have to go out you and do. get that WLA. You do. Or you could do it now, but you have a few years. I throw the average off. I got to <laughs> be respectful of the average. So lately, Harley's been having a few issues, again, with government policies. Tariff issues. And things like that. And just the U.S. market has been suffering some losses in general as people look for more pragmatic, environmentally friendly ways to travel. There are new motivators for vehicle choice. Yes. And and that has taken a chunk out of the potential consumer base for Harley-Davidson. Yes. And Harley's plans on how to regain this market have been kind of vague, but we do know that they're working on electronic motorcycle. Originally, they were talking about kind of releasing it in 2019, and that's been pushed back to 2020. It's probably just to get it nice and perfect. Yeah. And and we know that there's been talk about Harley-Davidson relocating headquarters uh, in the Mm -hmm. wake of things like tariffs. I mean, when you have a company that has a lot of its business overseas and that's where its healthy market is, then that's a real issue. And there's been a pretty public battle. There has been. I mean, I would say that Harley-Davidson is on the brink again. In fact, we may have to do another episode about Harley-Davidson and the modern era in the future. But it was interesting looking into this. Uh, Motorcycles are one of those things that I've always thought were super cool, Mm -hmm. but I just can't imagine that I would ever own one, not for any negative reason. I just, it's hard for me to think of myself as being cool enough to ride a motorcycle. I mean, coolness shouldn't factor into it. It shouldn't, but it does. (laughs) But you know what would be super cool? 
what would be super cool. If we wrap up this episode. Let's do that. That's it for Harley Davidson. Join us for a totally new conversation about a totally different company that faced the brink. I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Bye. Bye. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about, as well as keep track of all of our episodes, make sure you visit our website at thebrinkpodcast.show. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.